I will share something that I wasn't planning on sharing. Um, I had a negative sexual experience when I was a teenager. And because sex wasn't normalized in my house, I wasn't able to talk about it. And I kept it a secret for several years from people that really should have known. And I think that's where we have to start talking about sex because there's so many people that that have sexual trauma that feel like they can't come forward because sex isn't a conversation in their house. And so if someone is out there um, listening to this, just know that I once felt the same way. And the way that we can end this stigma is by taking the taboo away from pleasure. Thank you. I love that. And thank you for sharing that. The things that you experienced, the trauma you experienced, I am so sorry. You did not deserve that. And I was talking to somebody recently who said this sentence to me that like has really opened up so much healing. And that is simply rape is not sex and sexual assault is not sex. That act is so much closer to violence than it is to sex. Lovers and friends. Hi there, lovers and friends. Okay, if the title of the episode and that clip did not adequately give you a trigger warning, let me do that real clearly right now that this is an episode that can be extremely triggering for people. And if it is too uncomfortable for you to engage with, no stress, we will talk next week. Every single week, this podcast brings you a different topic pertaining to sex, love, relationships, and attachments. And while, like the episode title alludes, I do not believe that rape is sex. I do understand that this is a topic that exists within this realm. And what you just listened to off the top is a soundbite from a podcast episode that I did with Demi Lovato. And Demi Lovato has a brand new sex toy that was released. So I have some fun news. I officially launched my own sex toy. Valesa and I made a gorgeous wand vibrator that works for all body types. This is my toy. How good does that feel to say? It feels so cool. <laughs> it feels so cool to like have a box with my name on it. It says Demi Wand. Like, yeah, fuck yeah. And so Demi invited me on their podcast to talk about the sex toy and talk about sex positivity and sexual wellness. And at the end of the conversation, Demi opened up and said, this is still a very difficult area for me because of the trauma that I experienced. And I put that clip out there because I knew that it would be powerful for many people and it went viral and it started so many beautiful discussions. And that's what this podcast is really about. It's me furthering the dialogues that I know that my audience wants to engage in and me getting to do it in a way that I think is going to add something special. And I do believe that this is a fucking special episode. And that is 100% due to the fact that I tapped people to join me who I think are really phenomenal and talk about this in a very healing, fresh, and holistic way. So on this episode, you're going to hear from two people that I admire very greatly. One of those is a best-selling, New York Times best-selling author, Ashley C. Ford. And the other person is Jiminika Eborn. And Jiminika is a trauma specialist who is here to take care of us because I'm going to say something in full disclosure. I am not a specialist on this topic. As a matter of fact, I'm extremely uncomfortable talking about this topic. 
And a big part of my discomfort is the fear that people are now going to start to look to me as someone who can hold their trauma and who knows what to responsibly do with their pain. And I don't necessarily know if that is going to be who I will become in the near future. Um, I know that if I do, I will take the time and energy to do it right. And I know that I'm currently not that person, which is why I invited somebody on. So boundaries is a very big part of informed consent. And so I want to set a boundary here and say that while I'm opening this dialogue, because I think it's so important and I'm having this dialogue here on this podcast, this is where my comfort zone exists in terms of talking about it publicly, which is why I believe that Jiminika is so important and instrumental this episode because she will be able to give you so much more what to do next. Because I do understand that when you have experienced something as heinous as sexual assault, no matter if you are somebody who is a victim, somebody who knows a victim, or somebody who was the aggressor, that this is a life-changing experience that you tell very few people about. And the person that you do tell, you want them to respond accordingly, which is why I want to push you towards experts who have put the work in. I am somebody who's still working on it. And I hope that there's also relatability in that. So I will say this, I am... So Jiminika said something actually very interesting in her segment that people have a preference of describing themselves as a sexual assault survivor or as a sexual assault victim. And I personally don't feel connected to either of those statements. I look at myself as somebody who has had that experience. Um, And so I was raped in my teen years and it did definitely make a massive impact on how I viewed my sexuality, which is why that sentiment of rape is not sex that Ashley shared is so powerful. And I believed if I would have heard that in my teens, it could have turned a lot of things around for me. As much as my mother, teachers, cousins, grandmother, and classmates had already spoken to me about the mechanics and morals of sex, no one ever mentioned that rape isn't sex. What Bradley did to me What his friend watched being done to me from the corner of my mother's shed wasn't in any way the same as what I wanted Brett to do with me. In 2009, I wrote a book called Laid, Young People's Experiences with Sex in an Easy Access Culture. And I remembered as I was prepping for this episode that I talked a little bit about my rape in this book. I didn't remember what I said or how much I said. So I reread that section. And I thought that there was something really powerful about it that actually speaks to the way that I want to approach this topic. So I want to share an excerpt of my book, Laid, with you. Let's go. A reading from Shannon T. Boudram's book, Laid, Young People's Experiences with Sex in an Easy Access Culture, Chapter 4, When No Loses All Meaning. Introduction. Have you ever seen a rape victim right after it happened? If you look into her eyes, she looks incomplete. It's hard to put into words, but it's almost like there's a piece of that person missing, said Andrea. Andrea was the editor-in-chief of a sexuality magazine that I was speaking to. I had the phone pressed to my ear as I listened to her words. All of a sudden, I felt really tired. And I remember having that same drowsy feeling right after my sexual assault happened. I remember taking the two-hour bus ride home and struggling to stop my head from slipping onto a stranger's shoulder. Now, on this phone call, I didn't offer my personal story, but I did think about the words that she said. I did think about what I might have looked like in the immediate aftermath of my sexual assault. I was 17. He had been drinking. 
after he was through with me, I had no idea where to go or how I would get there. I do remember being in his small bathroom with barely enough room to stand, avoiding my reflection while I put back on my clothes. I remember that I did not turn on the bathroom light and that I was wearing all black that day. Black jeans, black shirt, black stilettos. I don't think that I ever looked in the mirror because I seem to recall most other details like the purse I was wearing, but I can't remember my face that day. So what did my eyes look like? Would I have even recognized myself? Are you still waiting on a friend? Andrea shook me out of my flashback. Yeah, I think that she's almost here, so I should get off the phone. We'll talk soon. She offered her farewells, and I placed my phone back in my pocket. I sat still for a beat, adjusting my rear view mirror to the left, away from the street and onto my face. Staring back at me were two wide and empowered eyes and a pair of determined-looking brows. I imagined that many nights ago, underneath the tears and the confusion of that really fucked up experience were these very same empowered and determined eyes. I really wanted to share that excerpt because of those two words, determined and empowered. And that sums up my feelings towards this episode. I am determined to talk about this topic and to go there with you to take this journey together even though it makes me uncomfortable and even though inherently it is an extremely uncomfortable, painful, traumatic, ugly topic. And I am also determined to deliver this message to you in the most empowering way possible. I want to have this dialogue in the way that I have everything else with a sense of autonomy, a sense of agency, and if at all possible, with some levity to it. A laugh is like a breath. And so if you take a breath when you're talking about something really difficult, you just feel calmer. That's beautiful. Thank you. Wow. Just thought of that. So I'm determined and empowered to give this a try. And I thank you very much for trying with me. All right, let's roll into things. So I want to first tell you about who's going to come at the end of the episode. And then I want to talk about who's coming up next. So at the end of the episode, you're going to hear from Jiminika Eborn, a comprehensive sexuality educator, a trauma specialist, and trained rape crisis counselor. But right now, I have to bring my girl, Ashley Seaford, into this interview because she truly is the one who inspired this episode. Ashley Seaford is the author of the Oprah-endorsed New York Times best-selling memoir, Somebody's Daughter. She has written for The Guardian, Elle Magazine, BuzzFeed, Out Magazine, Teen Vogue, New York Magazine, Allure, Mary Claire, The New York Times, and Netflix. She has been named among Forbes 30 Under 30 in media, Brooklyn Magazine's Brooklyn 100, Time Out, New York's New Yorkers of the Year, and Variety's New Power of New York. I had to read that list because I don't know anybody else who's been named underneath that much best under best lists, but it's going to be very obvious to you why Ashley deserves to be on all the lists, and she's definitely at the top of mind. Ashley. Yes. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Let me just be honest and say that this conversation kind of terrifies me. And today we're talking about rape. Mm -hmm. Uh, It terrifies Mm -hmm. me because I'm afraid of saying the wrong thing. It terrifies Mm -hmm. me because I have my own unprocessed experience. And it terrifies me Mm -hmm. because I am afraid of opening myself up for other people to share their experiences. And for me not being in a place where I know how to respond appropriately uh, or that I don't necessarily even want to be a a soundboard for so much pain and grief. And so for Mm -hmm. that reason, 
I very rarely talk about this. As somebody who talks about uh, sex and intimacy for a living, this is just a topic that I refer a lot out to. And uh, I will have some experts on here who I referred to, you know, at the end of this episode, because I think that there's incredible minds who are just beautiful people who devote so much and have given themselves over to learning how to manage a particular kind of pain that is so relatable, Mm -hmm. but so difficult to talk about and to find spaces where you can talk about them. So I just want to say the reason I felt compelled when you said this, and let me just backtrack. Uh, I talk on this podcast about intimacy and every guest that we have, I say the interviews are the best when it's a topic that you really care about. So if you really care about bringing lollipops into the bedroom, because that's your jam right now, let's make an episode about that. Like, I don't care what it is. Let's make an episode about the thing that is really important to you. And this was the topic that you said was really important to you. Why? I think because we know that sexual assault is a lot more common than uh, any representation in media or news would indicate. We know that it's very, very common. Um, And because we know that it's common and it happens to all kinds of people in different situations, I think we should be open to having conversations about what the aftermath of that kind of violation does and or can do to a person's intimate experience. I think we've seen it go one or two ways in a lot of our representation, which is that a violation of a sexual nature causes a person to either shut down when it comes to intimate experiences or it causes them to become wildly promiscuous in a way that is destructive because they are doing it without intention or without any real care for themselves. There are more ways than those two ways for this situation to turn out. And when I was sexually assaulted, uh, because I am a survivor of sexual assault, I felt like something was wrong with me because I did not have one of those two reactions. And I thought those were like the sanctioned victim reactions. Mm -hmm. And I'm glad to have found out that that wasn't true and that that wasn't the case. So I want to talk about it because there is a chance somebody out there needs to know that this isn't the case. Well, what was your reaction? My reaction was at first to have a very serious issue with dissociation. And eventually I found myself not very long after my sexual assault, I would say um, about a year and a half out. I found myself being intimate with someone again for the first time and having an extremely beautiful experience that affirmed for me that what had happened to me was not sex. And it also affirmed for me that I was still capable of feeling this way in an intimate situation. And I didn't expect that. You know, I had really punished myself for a long time with my expectations of what it would be like versus what it turned out to be. And I didn't understand how confusing it is to be young to be dealing with such a tough reality and to be having your unique human experience not seeing it reflected back to you in any way. 
I am so grateful for the line in your book, rape is not sex. And I don't know why those four words never occurred to me or I've never come across them. And again, in full disclosure, I would say that I probably don't lean into literature or education in this realm that are around non-consensual experiences. So maybe that's just a a me thing. I'm not saying that that that's the common experience, but I had never heard anybody say that before or never heard it put that way before. Can you tell me about those four words? Absolutely. When I was growing up, there was definitely, if not in books or in media, the societal and cultural belief that when someone sexually assaulted you, when they raped you, that what they had done was have sex with you without your permission. And that messes up a lot for a young woman, for a 14-year-old girl uh, who is also being raised in purity culture, believing that what had happened to me had not just been a crime or a violation against my body, that it had taken my ability to say yes to sex, that it had taken that from me, that my first time having sex, which was supposed to be this very precious thing about my body, that choice was now gone and there was no getting it back and there was no option for seeing it any other way from any other perspective. When I realized that what had happened to me was not sex, Not only was it freeing for me from an emotional standpoint, but it also put into perspective the fact that my virginity was considered a commodity. Mm -hmm. And I had to think about that. Like, is my virginity a a commodity? Am I less valuable without it? It took a really long time for me not only to understand that, A, Whatever virginity was, I had not lost it in that moment. Um, That's not something that somebody can take from you. And B, that what had happened to me, the definition of what had happened to me was simply rape, not forced sex, not non-consensual sex. It was rape. And that is separate from sex. And I wish... Oh my God, I wish that anybody in the whole world had told me that before it happened. I wish that anybody in the whole world had told me that if it happened to me, that what was to blame was not um, my budding sexuality or my blossoming body, that it was just a decision that someone else made to be violent. I wish somebody had told me that because it would have saved me a a lot of money in therapy and a lot of time avoiding intimate situations that I actually wanted to be in. You were 13 years old, which is just so heartbreaking. And at a time when you don't even know a lot about yourself and the changes that are happening in your body, and I know that your change started at nine years old, so maybe by 13 years old, you were a bit more had more awareness around what that is. But the fact that people saw you in that way and wanted to control you and control that in a violent way to process all that at that time. How long did it take you from 
then to rape is not sex and I can love sex and value sex and have great sex that has nothing to do with someone's decision to be violent and to weaponize my sexuality against me. I think after having sex with my first boyfriend, um, Brett, it was clear to me almost immediately that what happened between us wasn't anything remotely like what happened to me with this other person. Uh, But it took a while after that moment to come to the conclusion that that was okay. And also that I was allowed to explore and be curious and to continue having a sexual life that was not hindered by this interaction. I think if I'm being perfectly honest, that I'm still processing some of that. Some of that is still moving through me. When my book came out, Somebody's Daughter, people wanted to talk to me about sexual assault, about rape, about things of that nature. I always felt like I'm not the right representative because I still talk about sex. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I talk about sex now. I talk about how much I enjoy it. I talk about how much fun it is. I talk about how great it can be. I talk about how sometimes annoying it can be and finding your way back to each other if you've lost your way from each other, all of those things. And I worry in my mind, I still have this perception that there's somebody going, you know, somebody who has been raped just wouldn't enjoy sex that much. Mm. They wouldn't talk about it that much. They wouldn't be, you know, as the kids say, horny on main. They wouldn't do those things if they were a real victim. And those thoughts, those things that I've heard other people say, they don't just evaporate. I can have the argument within myself that like, I don't believe that anymore or I don't feel that that's true, but that doesn't mean the argument doesn't come up because it was presented to me often as a child. Can you say more about that? How was it presented to you more as a a child? When I was growing up, it was very clear to me that at least in my family and the people who I was around most, even in school, classmates, teachers, genuinely believed that it was a girl or woman's responsibility to not make herself look or seem like she was available to be assaulted. Mm -hmm. And that didn't mean being less feminine. That didn't mean being less pretty. That didn't mean any of those things. It essentially meant that if some part of your body or some part of the language you used around sex made an adult uncomfortable because you were a child or because you were underage, then you were opening yourself up to be violated by your peers and by adults. So I was definitely raised with the idea that rape was not only totally preventable by women specifically, but also that once it happened to you, you were kind of ruined. And I believed those things up until that point. I absolutely did. I thought I was in the wrong place. I thought I wore the wrong thing. I thought I didn't fight enough. I didn't fight quickly enough. All of those things. And it's strange to me now that there are people who think, you know, 
oh, wow, I can't believe that happened to you. I can't believe you felt that way, like you couldn't tell anyone. I can't believe you felt like people wouldn't believe you. And I want to say, you know, the same year that this happened, that I was sexually assaulted, my English teacher, after a tour of the high school where I knew a lot of the um high schoolers because it was a very small high school and like half of them were in marching band and I was in high school marching band when I was in middle school. And so I saw people that I knew and I said, hi, hello, you know, when they were in the halls for passing periods. And we got back to middle school to this English class and the teacher who had been leading the tour of the high school, a woman uh, told the rest of the class that everybody did a really good job. Um, but did we see Ashley Ford shaking her boobs at every boy in the highway in, in the hallway at the high school? And she said that whenever I saw someone I knew and specifically a boy that I threw my arms open and shook my chest at them and walked over to them for a hug. And she said this in front mm. of my entire class. And it was clear to me that like, oh yeah, she sees my breasts and she knows that boys and men see my breasts mm -hmm. and she blames me for how they react to them. Mm -hmm. Hi. Adore you. I think that's... Um, I adore you. <laughs> I think there's just so many cool ahas in that because I am one of those people where after my experience becoming very promiscuous and my thought process behind mm -hmm. that was that oh, everybody just wants to have sex with me. So like, let me just jump ahead and do it first because everybody wants to just have sex with me. And if you are a man who shows interest in me, this is what the exchange is, the unwritten exchange. Like you're not here because you want to hang out with me or because you think I'm cool or because you want me to come to your party. I just started to become very forward and very, not just like promiscuous. Like I was the aggressor. aggressor. Yeah, I was the aggressor in sexual oh, yeah. experiences because I thought that that experience was that person wanted to have sex with me where... What you said, which is so beautiful, is that maybe they didn't even have any interest in having sex with me. And maybe it had nothing to do with sex. Maybe that person just wanted to be violent. Maybe that person just wanted to assert their power over somebody else in a violent way. And penetration was the means that they did that. But that mm -hmm. isn't what the root is. Um, it's not about lust. No. And I just no. am grateful because I... Like you said, it's not a thing that I wake up and think about or it's not a thing that's like, I, I think that hinders my expression or the way that I feel about my sexuality. It's just a thing that I didn't really spend a lot of time focused or thinking about. But when I read those words in your book, that was just the first time that I was like, ah, I'd, I'd never thought of it that way before. So I just want to say thank you for that. Um, thank you. Thank you for saying that because I think that both of our experiences are common. And it's a lack of education, sexually and emotionally, that puts us in a place where we think that, like, that we are kind of not involved in sex, <laughs> that we don't even really have to be there, you know? And I, there's a better way to do it. Yes. There's just a better way to do it. And I think it starts with us having conversations like this, these big, uncomfortable conversations about these hard topics and just doing our best to talk about them because we are not going to be okay 
if we can't talk about what hurts. And I think women especially, and not necessarily just cis women, um, but I think if you've had a feminine experience in this society, we need to be able to talk about the vulnerability that comes along with the expression of our femininity. Mm-hmm. And we need to talk about how that vulnerability can be violated. And we need to talk about how we can react to it because people need options. And I think if you think there are only one or two options, then you just pick from what's put in front of you. Yes. When you talk about your sexual assault and what happened to you, because you've been brave to share your entire story in the way that it does. And every article that I have read about, because you started off actually one of your biggest you know, viral pieces of work in that essay that you first wrote was about your rape and your sexual assault. And with that conversation mm-hmm. comes the dialogue about your dad as a sexual yes. assaulter and your mm-hmm. knowledge that that has to come together, but still being brave enough to stand up and say, this is a topic that I want to talk about is really cool. Thank and you. Why did you decide to do that? Um, because being a survivor of sexual assault and being the daughter of a man who committed sexual assault um, were things that were part of my reality, uh, part of my thought processes, part of, you know, what was running around my mind quite a few days of the week. And I processed through talking about things and through writing about things. And I had this huge resistance initially to talking or writing about sexual assault in any capacity at all. Um, Whether it pertained to me, whether it pertained to my dad, it didn't matter. I didn't even, when people used to ask me initially why my dad was in prison, I mean, well into my college years, I used to tell them I don't know, that my family wouldn't tell me. Um, And that was true for until I was 14. uh, But then I found out. And not only are there a ton of people who grew up the child of an incarcerated person, if we look at the rape statistics uh, in this country, how would it be possible that people who commit rapes don't have family members or children? Mm -hmm. How would that be possible? It's not possible. So why don't we ever hear anything from those people? Why don't we ever hear anything about how another person's choice to take away another person's choice affects you and your family and your life and your emotional intelligence and your livelihood and all of those things. Why don't we talk about it? And I realized we didn't talk about it because we felt like being related to someone who did something like that said something about you. If you have a parent or a sibling or a cousin, an uncle, a friend who does something like that, and they go to prison and they are being held accountable, you are supposed to pretend that person doesn't exist. And you are definitely supposed to pretend that you don't think about, care about, or care for that person Mm -hmm. anymore. And that was not my reality. I knew that that didn't mean something was wrong with me. (laughs) 
eventually. I knew that my capacity to love and care for my father, even as I knew I could not forgive him for his transgressions, didn't mean that something was wrong with me or that I had done something Mm -hmm. wrong. I love what you even just said, right, about there are... X amount of statistics, right? There's X amount of people who are incarcerated for this reason. We have to know statistically that those people have children and wives and mothers and sons um, because, you know, sexual assault is not dictated by gender. Um, So I think that that's so important because yesterday when I was reading into this and I I like to refresh stats to say, like, where are we at now? And the current stat that's circulating is that one in three people will be an assault of a sexually violent crime. And I thought about that stat, not from the standpoint that one in three, but it's the one that I thought about of like, is it one person going around raping people? No. So when we say one in three, we're not just speaking to the fact that there's this many victims, but there's also this many perpetrators. There are this many people who have chosen violence um, in, in those times. And when we hear that, I think it's a call to action to ask more questions and to try to empathize and understand, which there's two things that I've read that you have said that I was like, wow, that's a way that I've never thought about it before from this person's perspective. And one of the lines is that you said that your dad explained to you that at the time that he had assaulted um, those women, for him, it was an opportunity to become a monster so that he didn't have to become a man. And I also loved the line of you saying, listening to your dad, wanting to hear from him, wanting to learn from him and wanting to see him as a part of that's a part of his history is you not forgetting and diminishing your own humanity, but not diminishing his humanity of thinking of him as less human, because that separates me from your own humanity and you are in love with your humanity. How did you get the courage to do that? I tried the other way. I tried being consumed with anger and and, and bitterness and some hate, you know, towards myself, towards my dad, towards the person who raped me. I tried those things. Those seemed like the right thing to do. (laughs) It just didn't work. I didn't feel better about me. I didn't feel better about the situation. I didn't feel healed. I didn't feel more safe. I didn't feel better protected. I didn't feel any of those things. I was just in a constant state of anger and hypervigilance, ready to pop off on anybody who tried me and kind of hiding from the people who loved me. Mm -hmm. When I started to consider that a person's humanity might include these actions and that it didn't actually make them less human. Yes. And that my love for another human couldn't make me bad. What I do could make me bad. If I made excuses for my father, then yeah, I'm fucking up. But that's not 
how I felt. I felt like, what if both are true? Mm -hmm. What if both are true? What if my dad did a terrible, unforgivable, heinous thing? And what if I still love him? Now what? And it didn't kill me. (laughs) My complex emotions didn't kill me. But trying to deny my complex emotions very nearly did. So I just didn't want to die. (laughs) Oh. One of the things my dad said to me that changed, that helped me heal from my soul was that he told me when I asked him why, how could he could do it? He said, I made a choice. It's really important for you to know that I made a choice, that it wasn't something they wore. It wasn't something they did. It wasn't how they looked. It wasn't who they were because I was not thinking of them as people when I acted. I made a choice. And that was when it finally landed on me that the person who assaulted me made the bad choice. That my choices up until that point weren't inviting that into my life. That I didn't have to go back and scrutinize everything about what I had done and decide to never do those things again because that's how I'll prevent this. It's like I, I, I finally knew in my gut that what had happened to me had happened to me and that I had not called it down on myself. Ashley, I really don't have the word to describe how badass and needed that I think that you are. But do you know who I do think has the words? Make sure you grab a copy of Ashley C. Ford's memoir, Somebody's Daughter. And you can also follow her on Instagram at smash fizzle, which is like smash like a pumpkin, fizz like pop, and Ellie like Lauren Elizabeth, who is the lead producer on this podcast and did an incredible job pulling these conversations together. So I want to just shout you out quickly too. And if you are going to go on Instagram, because a break is nice, especially on heavy topics like these, I also highly suggest that you follow our next guest, which is Jiminika Eborn. But first, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey again. Okay, so. Jiminika is a comprehensive sexuality educator, a trauma specialist, and trained rape crisis counselor. Welcome, Jiminika! (laughs) I am so excited to have you because you're calm. Thank you. Your energy is so grounded, is so calming. And before we press record, I was... Like, what are the right questions? What are the wrong questions? What are this? And you're like, hey, just whatever you want to ask is totally fine. And you said, I'm completely comfortable answering whatever it is that you want to talk about when we press record. Yeah. And I love that because let me give you a little bit of backstory. This is a terrifying topic for me. One, I feel like I'm standing around a bunch of landmines because the last thing that you want to do is initiate a dialogue that causes more harm to people who are already going through so much. And then number two, I just... Don't know if I have invested enough time in, into in, into picking the right words and saying things the right way, but you have. Allegedly, yes. Is it's that a fair work to in say? progress? Yeah, but I, I think also like we might say things and mess up because we're all learning. So like giving people that permission to like mess up, but also acknowledgement, I think is helpful. So you go by the name. You had a podcast previously <laughs> called Trauma Queen. Yeah. And that is a nickname people have for you. So how does one become a trauma queen? More specifically, how does one become a trauma expert? 
Whew. I think there's many different ways to go about it. Um, I am a person that has had multiple traumas happen to them. Um, and for me to learn all these things, I worked a lot in mental health. I worked in mental health facilities. My, that's my background for, on, it's ongoing, so 13 years. And school, my bachelor's in psychology, my master's is in health psychology. I did go to school to be a therapist and decided, mm, not my path. Um, I've studied alternative medicine. I'm studying like more sexual assault investigation so I can better help people and like my clientele or people have like questions about like the law and how the procedures go. But that's for me. And some people read things. Some people go to teaching. Some people take classes. I think there's many different ways to be about it. But I will say you have to address your own stuff mm. while it's happening and or before, right? Like you need to kind of do both. People are like, oh, well, I'm a survivor. I can do this. And I'm like, that's not always how it works, right? Like my path is not everyone's path. I jumped into this or did it find me? which is always the tricky thing for me. I'm like, I think this work chose me. I don't think I chose this work. I also think the things that I get to do is such a privilege and a gift that I'm like always learning because as you talk about like being nervous and like possibly harming people, I don't want to mess it up and hurt, hurt other people mm -hmm. because I know what my life has been like. So I'm always learning. Like you don't stop learning, I don't think, because there's always some new stuff. So let's break into this. I also want to say that we're obviously not offering a one-size-fits-all answer to these questions, but a massive question I've always had about rape. Mm -hmm. What do we call it? Because I went through the struggle of, after my experience, being like, okay, was that coercion? Was that bad sex? Was that rape? No, rape feels too aggressive. It feels uncomfortable. I'm going to use the term sexual assault mm -hmm. because that can mean a variety of different things. And it, it feels a lot more generic and comfortable. Mm -hmm. Is it important to call it what it is or is it important to call it what feels comfortable? I think it depends on the person. It's just like saying, are you a survivor or a victim? I never like to label things, but I always say like, Sexual assault is like you said, it's the umbrella and rape is underneath it. And when people ask me, I will say I've been raped once, but I've been sexually assaulted more times than I can account for. Mm. So I think it's up to people to identify. And I think as people that work with survivors, like if you're a sex educator that focuses like myself, you give them language and then you allow them to opt in. Because I think that is a part of helping them getting their power back by naming their own situation. If we come in, if someone comes in or you were one of my clients, you'd be like, this happened to me. I'd be like, oh, you were raped. You'd be like, I don't identify with that. I might've then harmed you mm -hmm. without even thinking about it because now I'm telling you the way that you've identified is wrong. Mm. And I'm also getting away from the word healing. Like people are like, well, how healed are you? I'm like, what's your journey look like? Because I think healing also puts this like, level or stairs that we're trying to reach. And you're like, well, I don't look like this person, so I'm clearly not doing it right. Mm. But everyone looks different. So I'm like, where are you at in your journey? Where are you at in your path? Taking that healing off takes the pressure off so I can navigate more and like focus on what I need. I want to give people an opportunity to take a look into the work that you do and the work that exists out there to see if they listen to this podcast and they're feeling the feels because the point of this segment in general is to encourage people to continue the dialogue on their own terms and in their own way with somebody who knows the nuances of their personhood and of their experiences if they're comfortable sharing it. So if we were to mock model what a conversation would look like in rapid form, mm -hmm. can we do that? Sure. 
I just love your ease. <laughs> I mean, it's either going to go right or go wrong. Let's do okay. it. Okay. <laughs> we got two <laughs> options. All right. Hello. Thank you for holding space for me and for having me here with you. So I want to inform you that when I was in my teens, I was raped and it was difficult for me to process then. And I feel like since then I've been able to process that in some ways, but in some ways I haven't. Does that, what, what now what? I mean, one, I want to acknowledge that that sounds really shitty and hard. Like that, that sounds really hard. And I'm sorry that happened to you. When you ask now what, like, is there something you're looking for? I don't know. I guess I'm wondering if this is a part of me that I'm supposed to heal or I'm supposed to move forward from and is moving forward maybe my version of healing. Mm-hmm. Um, is there work that I should think about doing or do some people not need to do the work? I would then ask, what is this work? And also then I would ask, well, what have you done? Like what, what experiences have you tried to possibly work on it before you came to me? I think when people come to me, I'm going to step out real quick. When people come to me, they're like, oh, I've tried this and tried this. So then why would I try to give it to them? So then I ask, well, what have you been doing? Mm. Like, what have you done to get where you are right now from that state? What have your relationships look like? Like, have you felt there is a difference or is, are you here because you want to be, or are you here because someone said you should be? Oh, what's the difference between those two things? Right. So have you identified something for yourself and you're like, oh, this is a part of me that I've been thinking about. Or did someone shame you and say you needed to go get help? Because there's a difference Mm -hmm. of someone directing you somewhere and you being able to acknowledge like, oh, this is a thing for me. Right. Like it's also like a power thing of like the power to like acknowledge and get back to yourself and questioning. Right. I think questions are powerful. People like you ask many questions. I'm like, how do we learn things? And people are like, they're stupid questions. I'm like, sometimes, yeah, right. Yeah. But also, <laughs> like, questioning yourself allows you to open those doors. So then that's why I ask, like, are you questioning this for yourself? Or are you questioning it for someone else? Because your results might be different if you're doing something for someone else versus yourself. Mm. I think that I'm so curious about this entire process and I'm so green about this whole process that I don't even know what the options of healing look like mm-hmm. other than talking about the event or the experience, what does it mean to heal and get past this? What do you do? And that kind of goes to my original question of like, now what? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think it looks different for everyone. I think everyone goes automatically to talk therapy. But I think that many people understand now that we also hold trauma in our bodies. So I would also suggest like some type of movement or movement or somatic therapy Like figuring out, like, maybe you've noticed, like, I've been walking around with tight shoulders. Maybe you investigate that. We um, have points in our bodies that hold trauma more than others. So our shoulders, our neck, our guts, our bowels, and our hips. So if you've had, like, people will go, oh, I've had stomach issues. It might be trauma. Mm -hmm. You might be holding that. Like, the way you walk, maybe your hips are tight. Maybe your legs are uneven a little bit. Might be trauma. Is it always No, but like navigating what that looks like, that might be something to look at. Even understanding like communication, like you might communicate differently because of trauma. Like I think I communicate differently. And so maybe that's something for you to look at. Mm. Navigating like what safety feels like for you 
And I always talk about safety in two ways, internally and externally. Like, how do you navigate the world? When you walk down a street, what types of feelings, emotions, or thoughts come up for you? So then if we are, I'm going to step back out again. If we are in a session, I'm going to ask you more questions. Like you said, I'm not just like talking. I'm asking questions to kind of see where we need to go next. Mm -hmm. So even asking like your first question, I'm like, okay, so I'm going to ask you a question back. Mm. People are like, you're asking me questions. I'm like, well, I'm trying to understand so I know where to move you mm-hmm. and or support you in. Which is unique though, because again, when we go to a doctor or a dentist, right? We say, there's a pain in my tooth and that's it. You know, now you figure it out. Now mm-hmm. you fix it. Now you do something with it. But there's something so empowering about being a part mm-hmm. of the process and also being, again, like you said, your own guide. Mm-hmm. And the caretaker is really just there to put a hand on your back. Yeah. But I think that's the cool part though, right? Like when you get to a point you're like, oh, I didn't know I was holding this in my body or, oh, I didn't know this is why I was approaching relationships or why I was so quick to anger around certain people. When I was raped after I turned to alcohol, I carried a bar in my trunk. Like only thing I didn't have was ice. I had mixers, I had cups, she was ready. And then I would get drunk and black out and fight guys that were similar to the person that raped me. Don't do violence, but it was a very violent time, right? Did I realize that until after? No, right? So even like when people ask like, well, what, what, what's next? I'm like, well, what have you done? Have you noticed changes in you? Have other people said that they've noticed changes in you? Because those might be signs of being heightened and triggered in ways that you don't even acknowledge and or know to mm-hmm. acknowledge. And that's an important note too, because sometimes coming to a trauma specialist might be more of a discovery of mm-hmm. what's wrong rather than I know what's wrong. Mm-hmm. Let's do something about it. Because it's so hard to figure out the things that we need. Like when I do ask survivors, instead of telling them like, here's what you should do. I'm like, do you know what you need right now? Mm. Why? Because I'm also putting it back in their hands. People forget that. Like when you're helping people, instead of just being like, here's the list of things. Here's, you know, I wrote a book. Here's all the brief, read my book. They're like, cool, I'm not really in the state to read. Yeah. Ask people. You listened to the Ashley C. Ford interview. I did. I would love to hear your reflections on that. And if you're comfortable giving people some jump off points, if they had reflections on that, you know, how do they start conversations within their given toolbox right now? Yeah, I love the conversation. I think the conversation, one for me, being a survivor or a victim because language and also having a parent that caused harm to others, that's a mindset and trigger warning because I would love to drop those. Um, I was in the room when my mother was murdered by my sperm donor. So this is why I say I'm a child of trauma because that is the first thing that moved me through and like even being like, I'm so sorry. Yeah. I was just telling your sister, I was like, this is so like, it's, it's like a bio thing now. Like I'm like, here's my bio. It's a detail of your life, but it is a very sad, sickening detail. It's a very, it's a detail that structured my movement to get me here. Right. Like, is it sad? Yes. If I was older, would I have been more affected? Probably I was one. But like hearing her talk about like him asking him why. And he was like, it was a choice. I was like, oh. But what I loved about the interview, it was very honest. And also it hit on the sexual side of things. Yes. And I I love talking about that in the sense of people are always like, 
oh, are you okay? I'm like, stop talking to survivors in this drop voice. Mm. I'm like, we're still people. We're still sexual beings. And also like the way we look at sex, may it have changed? Yes. May it not have? Yes. I was a super sexual person before. I'm a super sexual person after. But also that's not everyone's narrative. So I think that conversation was beautiful to like open up because people don't talk about it. I mean, people don't talk about trauma in general. And then the vulnerable, anytime I hear someone's vulnerability of sharing their story. Yes. Because you never know how it's going to land. And also vulnerability is just scary because you never know how it's going to land and or how people will try to use it against you. Mm-hmm. Because that's what we see, right? Like when people are like, I was raped. Were you? But, well, let's ask. And I'm like, one to 2% of people lie. It's not a fun thing to just wake up and be like, you know what, today I'm going to ruin someone's life and say I was assaulted. Like, yes. No, because it, it's not just about that person. Now this is your life. Your name is all over. I want to ask as a personal question, because... What also makes me nervous or gives me cause for pause about this is I am not in a position where I am able to successfully help other people navigate. I'm okay with referring, um, but there are some times too where I open my DMs and it's, it's a lo- yeah, you know, it's a long message from somebody and it's maybe I'm just looking after my kid in that moment and I'm not ready to go to that space. And so I don't respond all the time mm-hmm. and I f- carry guilt about that. Not that you, I don't know if you know the answer to this. What happens when that happens to somebody? Yeah, I mean, that does happen often. Um, I would like to ask people don't, right? Like in the sense of maybe you email something and put like a, a, a in the title. Because when we when we receive things like that, even as educators that do this work, we might not be in the headspace. So I'm not going to be able to show up for you anyway, right? Mm. In the right manner. Like if someone, like you said, if you're with the baby, you're like, ah, I don't know, we're just over here playing. Um, What happens for people may vary. Some people can just jump into work. I have to be in the right headspace for that. Now, if you're thinking about like what a good response to be, you can be honest. I think we as, I don't like to say I'm an influencer, I'm influencer adjacent. Mm. Um, As people that people look to, I'll just use that. People want it to hear us respond, but I also think that we're role modeling. I use public facing educator. Okay. I mean that to say that public facing means that I'm my job that. I like that. is to carry a message to the masses. And that's important to note because I'm not an individual educator because I would need so much more information about you in order to specifically, like you mm, said, mm-hmm. I can't necessarily, like, what was the word that you used? It was um, invite. Yes. I'm not going to guide you. Yeah. I might invite you to see things a certain way. I might present things to you or present ideas to you, but I don't know enough about you in particular to be like your sole educator. I'm a public facing educator. So you should always keep that in mind that I'm responsible for tens of thousands of people's knowledge. And as a result, I have to be more general than an individual would require. But what I really want to know is, do people come to you and say I've reached out to people and they didn't respond and that no. killed me. No. Okay. I've never gotten that, but I do get the sandwich emails or messages and it'll be like, oh my God, I love your work. Here's all my trauma. You don't have to read it, but, and you're like thrown off guard. And then like when you're asking like, how do you respond? Like, how do you do that? I always like to say, thank you so much for trusting me with this, but I am not in the space to answer this right now. If, I, if I'm able to, I will get back to you. But if I am not, 
here is someone else that I know does this work. Mm. And if you reach out to them, can you like maybe acknowledge what you want to share before you get into it to allow them to opt in? Mm-hmm. So, cause then it, it's us role modeling, like how do we set up hard conversations and also still ask for help? And then acknowledging that they reached out, that we appreciate it and, you know, thank them for that type of space, but also acknowledging like, I am not this person right now for you. Yes. Cause that's hard. Cause you, I mean, you know, mm-hmm. cause you are this person for so many people. Um, and do you, do you want people to come to you individually? What's your preference in terms of how people first start to seek out your expertise, your work and your help? I think people can come to me, but not my DMs, right? Like the DM, you never know. It might be a friend sending you something like, who is this? Maybe they tagged you in a thing. I think if you email me, I think it's really nice because it prepares me. I'm like, I know if I open this email, it's a work thing. Yeah. Um, And that's already a different mindset, right? Versus if I'm like scrolling and my friend sent me a joke and I'm like, oh, what's this? Nope. Um, Also like, look at what I've done because it might already answer your question. If you look at my podcast, if you look at articles I've written, or if you're like, I don't know where else I can get help. I have a support group that we do for seven weeks, take a few weeks, whatever. And if you're also looking for community, which a lot of people are, because harm is very othering sometimes. So I think there's different ways. If you want to reach out specifically to me, see what I've already done, because it might answer your question or email me. Like you can send it on the website, but not just giving it in like a DM, because I might not be able to show up for you in the best way that you need. But if you give me time to take a breath, then I might be able to. There is the line in this podcast that I love so much, which is rape is not sex. Mm -hmm. And I think that was such an aha for me because for a long time, I looked at it like, oh, well, this is what sex is like. So Mm -hmm. let me reconfigure the way that I think about sex or have sex or initiate sex because of what I've learned about sex through an unconsensual experience. But when I separate it from it not being sexual at all, I now don't have to allow it to infiltrate Mm -hmm. my sex life in the way that it it did, you know, during, especially during my late teen years. Mm -hmm. Is there an aha that you can offer for people a perspective or a way of looking at things that you found in your work that can really be a great paradigm shift? I think reminding people that you're still allowed to have the sex that you want is also really powerful because I think once one is raped, sexually assaulted, whatever, we start to then internalize things and we look at the ways we do things as wrong. And that's normalizing just who that person is. Because I know after I was raped, I questioned a lot of things. I questioned being bisexual. And one of the things that my mother asked me, because I was with my grandparents, was, do you like women because you were raped by a man? Which is a, we had a conversation about that question, right? And it wasn't from a place of malice, but it's just like trying to understand. Yes. And I think also a lot of people struggle with that. It's like you have these aha, like my aha moment is not your aha moment. But normalizing like whoever you are right now is okay whatever type of sex that you want to have is okay. And it is not determined or ruptured because I think it's a big shakeup by what has happened to you. 
Thank you, Jiminika. Go to traumaqueen.love. That's traumaqueen.love to learn about the services and guides that she offers people who need her work. Speaking of much needed work, do not forget about Ashley C. Ford's book, Somebody's Daughter. And don't think for a second that I have forgotten about you. I am looking around right now and I'm feeling so much gratitude because I can feel you. I literally feel you standing beside me, sticking through this with me, putting your hand on my back, saying, it's okay, we're going to get through this and we are going to get better together and better as a result of having these higher dialogues. So I just want to say a massive shout out and to send a big hug wherever you are to you, if a hug is what you desire right now. And if not, let's just do a virtual high five. Um, yeah, it's been it's been a journey and a joy um, and knowing that there's people who are willing to go through these imperfect parts of who I am and to hear me stutter and sputter all over the place, which I hope you're not accustomed to hearing me do because I often get to talk about things that I feel very empowered in, I feel very knowledgeable in, I feel very myself and I feel very relaxed. And this is not one of those topics at all. Um, so if it got a little ugly and messy and imperfect, well, that's life. If you have now been listening to all of the episodes thus far, you'll notice something that's unique about this episode is I did not have audience submissions. And I just felt like there wasn't a question or a call to action. I didn't want to put that responsibility on people to offer advice or to offer up their stories. So I just felt like unless I could look you in the eyes and I could personally thank you for sharing and for coming forth on this topic that it just wasn't necessary um, to put anybody through that. But in future episodes, you know that I want to hear from you. And I, you know that this, again, is a community effort. So please make sure that you are signed up to my mailing list. If you go to shanboudram.com slash list, you can add your email because that's how I'm actually doing casting submissions for the most part. And that's how you can be a part of the next episode. And then after that, and the one after that. And on shanboudram.com is also how you can find out about courses that I'm doing. And you can click all the follow buttons and keep up to date with me. Or just keep coming back here because this is my thing favorite place and so that means the world to me you mean the world to me have a great week lovers and friends i'ma take you on a trip baby i don't pretend i said lovers and friends uh, i'ma hold you down down to the end i said lovers and friends uh, lovers and friends yeah, and i said lovers and friends uh, i'ma hold you down down to the end i said Lovers and Friends is a production of More Sauce from Stitcher. The lead producers on this episode are myself and Lauren Morrison. Also produced by Adam Krasner, Jackie Sojiko, and Isabel Gallant. Theme song by Jared Brady and Sean Ross. Audio engineering, sound design, and post-production also by Jared Brady. Our mixing engineers are Brendan Burns and Marcus Hom. And our executive producer is Jasmine Henley-Brown. 